very much for tuning in to the show where your rabbi reveals how the world really works and where we talk about the things that really do matter in your life. Thanks for being part of the show. And uh, today we're going to, in this episode, uh, we're going to take a look and start off at, uh, let's start off with something that interests, I think, everyone, sex and money. That's right. Um, And let's also ask ourselves, how have so many Americans been indoctrinated and propagandized to believe that big business is a far bigger threat than big government? That's right. Why do so many people believe that big government, ah, that's good, the bigger the better? But big business, now that's another story. And uh, without even delving into anything deep, it puzzles me because it's so simple on the surface. Just think about it. Your independence is tied to your bank account. If you've got a few dollars in your pocket, you walk with a spring in your step. If you have a few dollars in your pocket, you are more independent of others and of government and of everybody. But uh, what happens? What happens if government grows and grows? And don't forget, government has the capacity to remove your money from your pocket by force. It's coercive. Business only has the capacity of reaching into your pocket with your permission. If business doesn't supply the goods and services that you really want, you won't pay, you won't buy them, and the business goes out of business. That's one of the big differences. Surely that suggests that government is a greater threat to freedom than business is? Well, yes, obviously, but unfortunately that's just not how people see it. And in this episode, we're also going to investigate the weird but comfortable relationship that the left has with Islam. What's that about? I mean, after all, wouldn't you think that if Islam comes to power and Sharia law becomes prevalent, wouldn't you have thought that among its very first targets would be those promoting the policies of secular fundamentalism, yes, those on the left. So why are they so tolerant, and even more than tolerant, embracing of Islam? What's going on there? You know, I also, in this episode, I'd love to take a a look from 30,000 feet, a high-altitude look, at four revolutions that made our modern world. And perhaps we should also ask if there is a fifth revolution on the way. All of that in this very busy episode of Rabbi Daniel Lapp. Let's start off with sex and money, shall we? Here's the interesting thing. You hear all the time from the voices of the left in politics, in news media, in entertainment, and uh, perhaps above all in academia, on university campuses, what you hear again and again is that anything that two consenting adults decide to do is nobody else's business. It's just fine. 
And so if uh, two consenting adults of whatever gender wish to get married, hey, of course. Um, if two consenting adults, they, look, the, the mind boggles. I don't have to even give you examples. You've, you've heard this again and again and again, that, uh, that adults can interact sexually in any way they wish. It's none of my business, and it certainly is not any of the government's business, and there certainly should be not only no sanction, there not only should be no legal obstruction to two adults interacting sexually in any way that they choose, there should not even be any social judgment. There shouldn't even be anything negative. Absolutely not. There's got to be complete acceptance, wholehearted celebration, endorsement, and embrace of what are called lifestyle choices. And uh, uh, even to the point that uh, if a, a woman uh, wants to arrange with a medical provider uh, to kill the fetus within her body, that's nobody else's business. Nobody else's business. Now, when does it get to be everyone else's business? As soon as two people decide to interact with one another non-sexually. Okay, so this is now where it gets to be interesting. If I wish to make a private arrangement with you, so as that next time I'm in New York, instead of paying unbelievably obscene hotel rates, why are they unbelievably obscene? Well, they're so much higher than anywhere else. And you might say, well, real estate is more expensive in New York. Yes, that's true. But if you look at the size of hotel rooms in New York and compare them with the size of hotel rooms in uh, Wichita or uh, in uh, Riverside, California, or, you know, in most parts of the country, you will find that the cost of New York real estate has already been factored in by the size of the room. You're getting a teensy-weensy little room. So why are the rates that high? And the answer is that uh, the taxes in New York are so high. Uh, the union rules are such that labor costs for hotels are higher than anywhere else. And all of this is part of the way that government has been turned into a tool of the powerful. Uh, government makes noises about, oh, looking after everybody. We are socialists. Oh, well, I guess we wouldn't really say that, would we? But we can take care of society. We're looking for the most vulnerable. We're looking out for the poorest. That's what we're doing, right? Um, in reality, however, uh, government protects and preserves the powers of the powerful. And in New York, the, the powerful are the unions, who are very close to the mayoral structure of New York. They always have been. And uh, in order to cater to them and assure himself of an ongoing supply of what's called campaign funds, uh, the mayor will always take the side of the unions. And so um, tourists are always a good target to squeeze with uh, taxes and regulations and rules and things that make their hotel very, very expensive. Uh, because those who come have to or want to be there, and then they go away. They don't vote in New York. And so it's always a, uh, a very seductive, soft target for the tax and spenders uh, to go after the tourists. 
and uh, you'll often you'll often hear um, the government speak of of campaign of uh, of of economy boosting measures that depend on oh what we're going to be doing with the tourists that's right that's right well uh, that's uh, why New York hotels are so expensive. But meanwhile, I come to New York and I, you know what? I don't want to get a teensy weensy little room for $450 a night. I am going to rent a room in somebody's apartment or in some cases rent an entire small studio apartment. And guess what? I can do that for half the price or less. Uh, all I have to do is is go to a uh, a website, an app, Airbnb, and uh, basically I make a private arrangement with somebody. Well, guess what? Targeted by government. That's unacceptable. Well, of course it is because uh, the the unions oppose that. And, uh, and so my ability to make a private deal with you sexually, we can do whatever we like. But if I want to make a private deal with you economically, whoa, big problem, big problem. Totally different story. I'll give you another example. Uh, there is a um, a very effective company and website uh, and uh, app called Uber U B E R. Now, uh, this is not a commercial for them, and uh, and until they actually advertise on this show, I won't be giving them uh, any more commercial sign. But I will say this: that once again. Uh, instead of waiting for or taking an expensive cab with a usually surly cab driver, I'm sorry, but but that's often the case, uh, Washington, D.C., or let's stick with New York. Um, you take a cab in New York, you've got a very high probability of a driver who doesn't speak English. You've got a very high probability of a driver who does not know his way around. And uh, on top of that, he's surly. I don't like that. What I'd rather do is um, make a private arrangement with you. Why don't you come in your car, pick me up, take me to where I want to go. I know you have a clean car. We talk. It's pleasant. And I can pay you without touching money. I can pay you through my phone. And we're up and running. What a terrific system. And in fact, that is being attacked and assaulted uh, in New York as in other left-wing strongholds in other strongholds of secular liberalism that system is being assaulted vigorously and vindictively why why is it and this is the basic question we really have to try and understand why is it that you can do no wrong whatever you do sexually is truly no it's not a problem you can literally do anything at all but if you try and do something economically, it's almost impossible not to run foul of the law. It's amazing. It's the, that the culture has become incredibly tolerant of adults interacting sexually in whatever way they choose. But just let adults choose to interact economically as they wish or don't wish, and all of a sudden, the forces of government come down interfering with your ability as a private consenting pair of people to make your own arrangements. Now, I think you're all familiar uh, already with what will become classics in American legal legends in, are the governmental assaults on a small little bakery shop that decided that they simply did not want to interact economically with 
um, and uh, a couple who uh, wanted them to make a wedding cake for a homosexual union, a homosexual marriage, and they didn't want to do it. Right? Their religious conscience said, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Or there was also a, a photographer who didn't want to accept the job of, uh, of um, uh, shooting photographs at a homosexual wedding. And again, if, um, if there was, I mean, just imagine that somebody, I, I ask you to imagine this situation. A bakery in New York was asked, this didn't really happen, I'm postulating. A bakery in New York is asked to bake a wedding cake for a pair of Wall Street bankers, a man and a woman who work on Wall Street, and the bakery said, no, you know, we prefer not to. We, we are so opposed to finance and bankers. We think that you people are greedy and uh, you are hurting America. And guess what? It wasn't government who caused the housing and financial crisis of a few years ago. No, it was you guys. And we refused to make you a wedding cake. Can you imagine any circumstance at all? in which government would come down on that, uh, that um, or, or society or anybody would come down on that bakery shop and say, how dare you discriminate against bankers and financiers? You are going to be charged $5,000 a day for every day you decline to. Can you imagine that happening? I don't think so. Everyone would pat them on the back. And so once again, we see uh, money bad, sex good. What is going on here? And how... Is this working? Do we have any way of understanding what's really going on? I want to point you at my website. Uh, at some point, I'd like you to be able to visit there and uh, subscribe to my free weekly email thought tools and uh, also to see, well, more about me than probably you're even interested in. So please do visit RabbiDanielLappin.com, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, your rabbi, talking about sex and money. Uh, we're all familiar with the baker who refused to be, uh, make a, a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. Uh, we're familiar with a photographer who refused to ph photograph for, for religious reasons. They believe that uh, same-sex, same-gender sexual relationships are a sin, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, they were, I mean, effectively, they're being put out of business um, by unbelievably punitive fines. And uh, I asked the question in our last segment, what do you think would be the reaction if a baker or a photographer said, I do not want to be involved in a wedding between uh, two Wall Street bankers? Uh, Mr. Jones and Miss Smith have announced their engagement, and their uh, their picture showed up in the style section of the of the New York Times, and or wonderful and very uh, successful, financially affluent bankers. And a baker said, "You know what? I'm, I know they contracted with me, or they came to me for a wedding cake. I don't want to do it. I don't want to make a cake. I believe bankers are bad. I think financiers are awful. I think rich people are revolting." And I do not want to build. People would have applauded them. Oh, you got wonderful principles. You got wonderful standards. That's great. That's absolutely terrific. But if a baker says my standards preclude me from making a cake for a homosexual, oh, there you're terrible, right? Okay. So here's another example of where we see that society is tolerant of almost anything that two people wish to do sexually, 
incredibly intolerant of what people wish to do economically, uh, private arrangements and private deals. So here, private are, are completely uh, within the purview of governmental control and societal sanction. And so what we find is that uh, the, 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 the guiding principle of society seems to be that uh, there is – that what uh, people want to do sexually is nobody else's business. Uh, what people want to do financially is everybody's business. Weird. And I want to give you perhaps the most uh, disturbing example. Um, so I'm, I'm going back to um, – a, a popular magazine that ran a cover story a little while ago uh, called The Greatest Love Stories of All Time, something like that. And uh, let me tell you who some of the legendary couples described in this popular magazine, right? You, you'll see it on the checkout stand of every, uh, of every market. And, uh, and again, I, if they were advertisers on the show, I'd tell you their name, but, uh, but uh, we're strictly, strictly commercial here. So, and and by the way, like everything else, I say my opinion. This I'm not speaking for the Blaze, and uh, and obviously I'm not speaking for for Glenn or or for anybody else. Uh, my opinion strictly. Uh, okay, so uh, the greatest love stories. Let's hear about the greatest love stories. Um, why don't you fill in the missing names? Richard Burton and, come on, you know, well of course Elizabeth Taylor. That was one of them. Uh, here's another legendary couple described in this popular magazine's feature story on great love stories. Uh, King Edward VIII of England and, yeah, that's right, Wallace Simpson. I think they met at the Del Coronado Hotel in San Diego. Um, the uh, it was Really one of my favorite boating destinations. Uh, we sailed down the coast from... Uh, from uh, Los Angeles area, from Marina del Rey, and um, usually we'd we'd overnight it. Uh, that we'd as as the sun was coming up, uh, we'd have Point Loma. If you're familiar with the San Diego geography, and we'd sail into San Diego Bay, past uh, usually past at least one gigantic aircraft carrier of the U.S. Navy. And then continuing under the uh, Coronado Bridge, and then hang a right, or as we sailors say, turn to starboard, and into Glorieta Bay, and we would drop the hook uh, right off the Del Coronado Hotel. And uh, I remember the uh, the uh, in the picture galleries the sort of history of the hotel. I'm pretty sure they spoke about um, Edward of England and Wallace Simpson. Um, let me give you another one also featured in this magazine describing, oh, the greatest love stories ever, um, Frank Sinatra and, go on, go on, you got to know this one. That's right, Ava Gardner. Uh, here's an easy one. Uh, Clark Gable and, come on, Carol Lombard, of course. Now, you know, these are, are sort of like of, of an earlier generation, but... Uh, and and I wasn't I wasn't living in America at the time, but I do have a sense of the extent to which these screen idols uh, ran the culture in a way that isn't even true today. 
Uh, first of all, I think there are many more today. Secondly, uh, there, there are other distracting interests. And, uh, and so today, what, what, what happens in the day-to-day peccadilloes of, uh, of, of so-called celebrities or entertainment stars, uh, not, not quite as compelling as it was uh, when the papers and the uh, the gossip columns hung on everything that Clark Gable did with his paramour and lover, Carol Lombard. Uh, how, can I give you one more? All right, last one. Spencer Tracy, this one everybody knows, right? Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, of course. And um, here is the interesting thing, all right? I want to point out something which, which I'm sure that has already occurred to you, but the magazine talking about the greatest love stories of, of all time, uh, the, the, the magazine saw fit to omit. What is it? Well, at the time of his great love story with Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton was actually married to the mother of his two young daughters. His wife's name was Sybil Burton. That wasn't mentioned. I wonder how Sybil Burton felt about Richard Burton's great love affair with Elizabeth Taylor. Let's keep going. Uh, Edward of England, future uh, King Edward VIII of England, although, of course, he abdicated and never, never became king. Um, his lover was Wallace Simpson. But a point, again, conveniently omitted by the magazine is that she was Mrs. Wallace Simpson. Get it? Yes, she was married to her husband, Mr. Ernest Simpson. And um, and the fact that I've got to imagine that Mr. Ernest Simpson was less than delighted about his wife's great love story, it certainly didn't stop the possible King of England from consummating his great love affair. Um, let's keep going. Frank Sinatra was actually committing adultery with Ava Gardner. Right? Never mind greatest love story of all time. Frank Sinatra was actually married and had three children, but he still was engaged in the great love story with Ava Gardner. The magazine also mentioned, you'll recall, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. And um, it's, again, conveniently forgotten that while, while Clark Gable was engaged in this great love affair with Carol Lombard, um, he was actually married to Mrs. Rhea Gable. How about Spencer Tracy? Like the great Spencer Tracy? And yes, indeed, a fantastic actor. Uh, but when the magazine was talking about his fantastic love affair, story of the century, uh, with Catherine Hepburn, he was actually married at the time to Mrs. Louise Tracy. And so all of these couples that were hailed in uh, popular culture as having these incredibly wonderful love affairs uh, were in all reality, truthfully, engaged in adultery. And that was fine. It was no problem at all. You see, whatever people want to do consensually, sexually, is just fine. 
It's nobody else's business. And to the extent that it is, we celebrate it. It's wonderful because they were in love. They wanted each other. I think you'll probably remember when uh, Woody Allen engaged in, I think, what most people would consider to be an inappropriate sexual relationship uh, a little while back. Uh, people did say to him, and so, you know, oh, by, and by the way, the reason it wasn't automatically approved, although for the most part it, it didn't matter, but the only reason it didn't is because um, the, the the woman involved was much, much younger than he and uh, was a uh, was a stepdaughter. He was She was a daughter of the, uh, the woman he was uh, living with or married to. Anyway, bottom line is that the classic response from the uh, the filmmaker Woody Allen was the heart wants what the heart wants as if that explains it and so therein we find one of the most profound and compelling contrasts between conservatism and liberalism conservatism believes that human behavior should be judged by the head not by the heart and liberalism believes human behavior is judged by the heart. Conservatism believes that uh, wisdom and conscience and rules and structure comes from outside of myself. I look to the wisdom of the past, and I judge myself in those lights. Uh, liberalism says it all comes internally. My heart will tell me what is right. Nothing could be a bigger mistake in the conduct of a human life than deciding that my own heart will tell me what is good or bad, what is right or wrong, because it completely overlooks the almost infinite elasticity of the human heart. We can make sure that our hearts want exactly what we want. And overwhelmingly, if you take a look at all the things in your closet that you don't need, all the things you bought and you have them in one of those rented storage units, all of those things, I think you'll agree that each and every one of them you bought with your heart and not with your head. That's the reality. But uh, never mind. Uh, what we're still must focus on is the contrast between sex and money. And what we've been looking at is that uh, a popular magazine – very popular, read by lots and lots of people, has no compunctions whatsoever about detailing and celebrating and embracing the great, great love stories, every one of which was an adulterous relationship. And, um, and they don't talk about the pain that was suffered. I mean, Mr. Ernest Simpson, whose wife is committing adultery with a, uh, a pathetic, weak-minded uh, English aristocrat. What about him? Did he have Did he have a great time? Did he celebrate that great love story? And, and how about Sybil Burton, the wife of Richard Burton? Did she think it was wonderful that Richard was having a love affair with Elizabeth Taylor, and um, and Rhea Gable, Clark Gable's wife, while he was committing adultery with Carol Lombard? Again, look, you know, fine. If it's nobody's business, nobody's business. But if a magazine is going to make a big fuss of these incredible love stories and not even mention the lives that were harmed and displaced and hurt and shattered, the people 
who were pained and who were inf- who had inf- afflicted upon them great suffering. And what about the children of these people who were engaged in these very public adulterous acts that destroyed their marriages and their relationships? Like, no thought for them at all? Well, it actually gets a whole lot worse than that, my friends, because um, just about the exact time, it was about two weeks earlier, that another magazine, also popular, well-read, very, very wide circulation, uh, ran a story about villains, some of the worst villains in America, a cover story. And uh, these villains were shown on the cover like mugshots with black frames around them. Who were these great villains of, of life in America? Talking about sex and money in this episode, and uh, I told you about a very popular magazine that ran a uh, massive story about great love affairs, and uh, it so happens that uh, they're all adulterous, and it didn't matter at all. Not a tear was shed for the spouses whose lives were shattered because their spouse engaged in an adulterous affair that, oh, it was a great love story. Uh, but no, not a, sh- a tear was shed for the children whose lives were shattered by their parents who were unfaithful to their uh, to their spouses, and uh, everything is fine. No, no moral censure whatsoever. No judgment whatsoever. In other words, uh, pretty much whatever people do, as long as it's consenting adults, whatever people do sexually, oh, that's just fine, and uh, and that is why. We have some of the absurdities on college campuses these days uh, whereby they are trying to regulate uh, the uh, the sad and and um, dis- distressing hookup culture where uh, where women are naturally feel uh, used and defiled by by what happens, and so the university's alternative is consent. There need to be consent forms. You have to sort of the woman has to essentially sign. For, is it any wonder that life is as completely messed up on campuses as it is today? Is it is is it any strange wonder that outlooks, views, and opinions, ideas are as distorted and as uh, upside down from reality as they possibly could be there? But. Um, Anyways, as long as it's two adults consenting, as long as it's got to do with in the sexual arena, oh, everything is fine and wonderful, and don't you dare criticize it. Um, how dare you spoil all the fun and stop the music? We're talking about love affairs. What the heart wants is what the heart wants. And forget the pain and suffering it causes. But um, just about the same time, Another very popular weekly magazine ran a cover story entitled Corporate Killers. Yes, Corporate Killers, the money murderers. And it featured photographs of uh, business leaders who were all the heads, the well-known heads of major companies. You know, we're talking of the size of uh, AT&T and IBM and big, big, big companies. And uh, these cover shots on the cover of the magazine had all been photoshopped to resemble police mugshots. And uh, the the story was about what they called uh, the cruelty of capitalism, 
um, you, you lose your job and your former employer's stock price rises and the CEO gets a raise. This is how evil and horrible and it's really bad when stock prices keep going up on Wall Street. May, meanwhile, in Main Street America, bodies litter the landscape, That uh, bodies that have been discarded by the big companies. And um, the... Uh, the article was just packed with, with anecdotes. By the way, uh, anecdotes are very nice when you want to give an example of, of something that's happening. But if you see that an entire argument is constructed on anecdotes, you should always be extremely cautious and extremely suspicious. Uh, because, as they say, you know, hard luck stories is a really bad way to set public policy. Um, I don't care what the policy is. You will not in in a in a nation of over three hundred million people. You won't have trouble finding somebody who is impacted negatively, and uh, and then you turn that into a tear jerking story. And I, not to diminish the sadness experienced by the individual, because our own pain is always compelling and real, but to establish government policy, to establish laws and regulations on the basis of individual, always a real problem. And and so it was also with homosexual marriage. Oh, think of the pain these people have suffered not being able to marry. Yes, I understand. Anybody feels pain at not being able to get what they want. We all understand that. But since when does that become a basis for establishing law? That's the real question. So um, anyway, so back to the, the, the magazine story. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to point out is that the one magazine speaks about great love affairs and utterly ignores the pain suffered by the wives of the adulterers, the husbands of the adulterers, and the children of the adulterers. Completely ignores the shattered lives that the lovers left in their wake. The other story focuses anecdotally, obsessively, on the people who lose their jobs when companies downsize or when companies um, get rid of unions. Okay, so let's look and see at that point. When this magazine story came out, and I checked this, and the magazine story uh, basically made us feel, and, and, and it did this very effectively, it made us feel awful for all the people losing their jobs because evil, greedy companies and evil, greedy CEOs were downsizing. And, and yes, uh, the, the, the losing a job, hard to, hard to imagine. I mean, the things that are more stressful than losing a job, like you might remember in the, in the last episode of this podcast, I spoke about the stress scale that was developed by a, a very smart psychologist called Holmes. And uh, losing a job is way up there, you know, right up there with losing a relative and getting divorced. Uh, losing a job, let's not underestimate the seriousness of it. However, at exactly the, the same point, at exactly that same point in, in history, uh, the American economy was adding about 150,000 new jobs every month. 
so far, far greater numbers than the people who lost their jobs were the number of jobs being added. Was that mentioned in the article? Of course not. Not there at all. Because the article had an agenda. The article was intended to turn public opinion against business. And what you've got to really ask yourself now, and it's, it, it's a tough question, I agree, but let's, let's try and use our heads, not our hearts. Let's work with facts rather than just feelings. And let's ask ourselves, if something bad has to happen to you, and here is the choice, your spouse commits adultery and shatters your marriage, or you lose your job, what is worse? I know what I would prefer. If I had to choose between those two horrible outcomes, I would say, look, there's holding my marriage to being in a happy fulfilling good positive marriage that's of paramount importance if i lose my job i know we'll be in financial stress and i i know it's going to be difficult but how many times how many people have i interviewed on my radio show how many times have i encountered people and i'm sure you have too if it hasn't even happened to you it has happened to me uh, how many times do people lose a job they mourn about it, they grieve about it, they're miserable, depressed, and hopeless about it. And then within three months, four months, five months, whatever it is, they find themselves in a far, far better job than they ever were before. And they look back and they say, you know what, one of the best things that ever happened to me was getting fired. I never would have left that job because I would have clung to security and I would have been anchored to mediocrity for the rest of my life. Fortunately, they fired me, and now look where I am. That is overwhelmingly the pattern. It really is. That's, it's a good thing. It can be a good thing. There's no way in which divorce, hard, I wouldn't say no, but I mean overwhelmingly, uh, divorce is shattering. And so I would hold that if we're, if we're being intelligent about this, if we're going to be factual about this, if we're going to stick to reality and use our heads, not our hearts, sexual problems, sexual relationships can cause far greater misery for human beings than economic situations. Losing a job is bad, but not nearly as bad as losing a spouse and losing a marriage. And so, you you know, you just think about it. Um, who Who's a, a worse guy? The corporate CEO who fires an employee or the man who commits adultery with another man's wife? Who causes more pain? Who's the real villain here? Who's, who's caused harm that is irreparable? Right? If somebody destroys your marriage, they've harmed you in a way that is truly irreparable. Because even if you get remarried, it's, everything's different. You know that. Um, you lose your job, you can go on to better things. Nobody ever says, well, they destroyed your marriage. Maybe your next marriage will be even better. Nobody says that. In fact, uh, one of the books that I publish, and you can actually read about on my website, which is rabbidaniellappin.com, is called, and I know it's a long, cumbersome title, but it says exactly what we mean, I only want to get married once. Right? And, and again, look, I know that many of you are in happy, fulfilling, and wonderful second marriages, and God bless you, and, uh, and, and let's, let's thank God that, that these, uh, these things can happen. They do. 
But generally speaking, as a first choice, what you would want for your children is to only have to get married once. That would be the ideal, to never even have to go through the pain of the divorce that you had to endure yourself. And so, you know, I, again, I, I look at these two magazines. I look at them at the culture. I look at the, the view of so many unthinking people in America today who are ready to see the harm caused by somebody being fired by a company that is readjusting or, or whatever it is they're doing uh, compared to somebody who commits adultery with somebody else's spouse. And, uh, and the truth is that the latter causes much more harm. It's irreparable harm. Um, you know, the betrayed spouse does suffer more pain than a fired employee. I'm sorry, it's true. And I'm not diminishing the pain of losing a job, but I think that if your spouse betrays you, it's more painful. And it's also, you know, it's, it's also true that a fired employee is much more likely to find other employment at least the same or probably superior to his ex-job. A betrayed spouse, not that likely to recover a happy marriage. It's harder, much harder. Um when a uh, when a when an adulterer destroys a marriage more people are harmed than when a person loses his job surely and so wouldn't you think that a compassionate culture should more vigorously condemn the people who commit adultery than it condemns the department head who fires unneeded employees but the opposite is true adultery betrayal shattered futures are irrelevant. It's just collateral damage to great love stories. It's what the heart wants. But lost jobs, even in an environment that is creating thousands of new jobs for everyone lost, that's a reason to condemn those executives as corporate killers and uh, greedy government, gr greedy leaders. This is what the culture is beaming at us. If you cause unbearable pain to other people while in pursuit of your sexual pleasure, we understand and sympathize with you. However, if you are a business professional, causing even the slightest tinge of discomfort to others while in pursuit of profit and wealth, we immediately and unconditionally condemn you as immoral. Isn't that a very strange double standard? Zero tolerance for real or perceived financial wrongdoing, but infinite empathy for sexual wrongdoing. What is it? We're talking about sex and money and how it is that the society in general, people out there, the yeah, the people who are voting in, in the next presidential election, the people who uh, are going to help make the decisions that shape this great society, well, they believe that uh, anything that two consenting adults do sexually, well, that's just fine. Uh, but if two consenting adults engage in a financial arrangement, well, that's a different story altogether. Uh, finance bad, money bad, sex good. And uh, I was talking about looking back in history, and again, just just a great example, because there were two big things that were happening in 1998. And today, with search tools, it's really easy to find out which were the biggest stories. And the two big stories were that uh, the president engaged in 
uh, shall we say, a highly improper sexual relationship. And yes, I know he said, I did not have sex with that woman, but um, and we, I think we all know the truth. Uh, and she was a 22-year-old White House intern, right? That was a big story of 1998, you would have thought. But there was another story, and it was going on in exactly the same time, and that was that Microsoft announced um, the uh, that that they had, that highest profits ever, monumental profits, and the United States Justice Department decided that uh, this is evidence of financial wrongdoing in the antitrust arena, and the government was launching a lawsuit to break up Microsoft. Now, uh, time has of course gone by. And today there are other companies uh, like uh, Apple and Google and Amazon. And needless to say, it's quite possible that uh, you might be listening to this podcast in uh, in a period where even Apple and, Mike and, and Google and Amazon have, have gone the way of Microsoft and been supplanted by newer and, uh, and more successful and more um, uh, paradigm-shattering corporation this this is part of the pattern of growth of technical and financial growth uh, which i will explain but uh, the point is that back then uh, the government decided that oh microsoft posed this massive threat to american society once again uh, persuading people that big government is not the problem big business is in spite of the fact that the bigger government is, the greater its need and capacity to forcefully and coercively reach into my pocket and seize my wallet. But big business, no matter how big it is, doesn't have the power to take my money without my choice. If I bought Windows software from Microsoft, it's because I made a decision to buy Microsoft products instead of Apple products. That's all. Or I could have used Linux products. But I made a decision. They, they were not able to grab it from me. This was a very big difference. I'll tell you the honest truth. If, um, um, if I see, shall we say, 50 uh, graduates at college at, um, uh, at graduation, and I listen to a politician saying, oh, it's wonderful, you're the most fortunate generation in history, and oh, it's, it's so wonderful that you are now in a position to give back to society, and you can now uh, care and go into public service. I shudder in fear, because here's the general rule. Any activity that needs a euphemism is a problem, all right? For instance, uh, uh, people, and you may remember uh, the, the old honeymooners, uh, Jackie Gleason and Ed Norton. You remember back in those days? Well, he worked in the sewers, but if I remember correctly, he always spoke of himself as a sanitation engineer, right? Because, you know, people people prefer a euphemism for certain occupations. Uh, do, uh, do any doctors at cocktail parties say, well, yeah, I'm actually, I'm an abortion provider. I, I kill fetuses. No, they don't. You know, I work for Planned Parenthood, or uh, uh, or uh, I work in women's health. You know, things. Whenever you see euphemisms for what people do, you should be extremely suspicious. And so it is that um, I've noticed people often say, uh, "I'm going into public service." They 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 don't say, "I'm going into politics," because I think public 
uh, impression, public evaluation of uh, of politics as a profession and of politicians um, is about as low as, as it's ever been, as low as it virtually could be. And so uh, people tell college graduates, oh, you should go give back by going into public service. I shudder. I absolutely shudder. And very often uh, when I've spoken at uh, university graduations, this is my speech. And I, I say it very clearly. I do shudder when I hear people telling you that because I would much rather that you all went into business. I'd much rather you all went into business in some way or another. You know why? Because if you all go, let's say there's 50 of you there and you're going into government service, oh, excuse me, public service, but what it really means is you're going to work for the government in one area or another. What that means is that there are 100 new hands reaching into my pockets because you've got to get paid and you'll earn your pay by figuring out new ways to spend my money. You'll have to come up with other government programs. Um, like, uh, how about boating safety, right? Um, $200 million a year spent on boating safety instructions, programs to teach people boating safety. Well, you'd say that's, that's not too bad. Well, yes, excepting that far more gets spent in landlocked states, you know, like Nevada than in places like Hawaii, Right, because you are spending my money, not your money. When you spend my money, you're careless about it. You're not nearly as careful as when you spend your money. So uh, I say to you graduates, if uh, my choice is you going into politics, pardon me, public service, I shudder because that means you're going to take more of my money. And it'll always be in the name of a good cause. We have to take care of the poor. We have to do medicine. We have to do education. Bottom line is more of my money going out for less results, by the way. Worse educational results, worse medical provision, right? I mean, do you really want more supplied to you by the folks who brought you the IRS and the Veterans Administration and the Post Office and Amtrak? Are these really the people you want supplying more of the things you want in life? I don't think so. And so I say I'd much rather you all go into business. Because now you're going to be racking your brains trying to come up with things that could improve my life. Because only if you come up with services or goods that can improve my life will you get my dollar. I would much rather have people around me who are trying to compete for my dollar than people around me who can confiscate my dollar without my permission or without my approval. And so there we were, in, and it's, it's going back in time, but, uh, but it's just an interesting time that Microsoft, big, big business, in those days it was seen as big business. You know, today, of course, it struggles, and tomorrow, who knows where it'll be. But, uh, but back in 98, Microsoft was big business. Therefore, government decided under Bill Clinton that it had to show people the dangers of big government and big government is monopoly excuse me dangers of big business and big business is monopolizing and we got to bring antitrust legislation and sure enough i mean the the government then forced microsoft to spend a fortune of money and a fortune of time and energy and resources defending itself against the government's attempt to to break it up uh, meanwhile at exactly the same time 
the uh, the president is having sex with a 22-year-old uh, young woman working as an intern, if you please, in the White House. And the result? The result is that that was not nearly the story that the uh, threat posed by Microsoft was. Yeah, now again, you know, it was titillating, and so you heard about it, no question about it. But in terms of number of articles, the, the, the amount of ink actually spent, you cannot compare it. The overwhelming majority of journalists were obsessed with the damage and dangers being done by Microsoft, and far fewer were concerned about the damage and danger being inflicted by the President of the United States at the time. And again, if you were raising children at the time, you'll know the danger that he did. You'll know the damage he inflicted on society. A general lowering of sexual standards, not a problem. Who cares? Because it's sex, and that's fine. That's not a problem at all. And so we've got to try and apply the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom to explain this conundrum. How? I mean, it's, it's a double standard. Why? How do we explain the fact that sexual misconduct oh you'll pardon me that that whole phrase is obsolete what do you mean sexual misconduct there isn't such a thing whatever who who decrees what sexual misconduct is it's whatever two people want it to be but uh financial misconduct oh my goodness is there an obsession with that it's almost as if the more permissive we come sexually the more aggressive we become about prosecuting what is perceived as fine and when i say what is perceived it's because if you actually do a survey, as I did, of the number of um, prosecutions that resulted in successful convictions on the financial side, it's actually very small. I mean, we all know about the big ones. We all hear about the Madoffs and we hear about the Enrons going back. But uh, what you don't pay attention to is the vast number of prosecutions against business professionals which result in absolutely nothing. Um, the uh, the 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 name the company name AIG should remind you of a a, a massive case that cost a CEO his job, cost a number of people their jobs, uh, spent an enormous amount of money on a prosecution, um, damaged a major insurance company, all for nothing. In the, at the end of the day, there was nothing, and yet people were so eager to believe that, there, yes, government, uh, big business, always culpable, always culpable. And so I want to try and probe with you and answer why it is that there is this double standard. And um, I, I want to explain that um, perhaps on a subconscious level, uh, perhaps it's it's something that uh, you don't necessarily think about a whole lot, but um, we human beings prefer to not view ourselves as a unique creature at the apex of creation touched by the finger of God. No, we're just really a bunch of smart animals. And I've explained this in previous episodes of this podcast uh, in, in much greater detail. But um, we, we do find it more convenient to view ourselves as just another category of, of animal, another species, because that liberates us from having to make complex moral analyses about our lives. 
Uh, whatever we do is genetically predetermined, and therefore we're less accountable. And um, the, uh, the, the, the idea, by the way, and again, it's something that a popular weekly magazine ran a cover story on a couple of years ago, uh, big discovery splashed across the cover. Infidelity is genetic. Well, yes, it's called being a male. Doesn't mean you have to do it. It means you are drawn to it. Obviously, we understand that. But if you accept that God had nothing to do with our appearance on this planet and we are nothing but sophisticated animals, then biological determinism rules. And so it's perfectly understandable that if you are drawn to infidelity, that you engage in infidelity. Why not? It's your biology. And, um, and yes, I, I do understand that uh, women tend to seek out one man for their many, many needs. And I also understand that men tend to seek out many women for their one need. It's a big difference between men and women. But as human beings, thinking with our heads, not our hearts, we recognize that although we men are genetically predestined to want many women, we nonetheless know that civilization depends that unlike animals, human males do not need to act upon that call of nature. But uh, there's something even more powerful in explaining why it is that there is a double standard when it comes to sex and money. We are talking about the double standard where society is incredibly tolerant of anything two people do sexually, but uh, incredibly intolerant of something that two people might do uh, economically and financially. And so uh, the, 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 the popular culture out there, what I think of as the popular culture, looks at sexual straying um, not as a bad man, a naughty man, making a, a horrible decision to betray his marriage vows, but instead as nothing more than the altogether natural consequence of genetic conditions. Uh, he's a man, isn't he? An intense hormonal activity. Hey, he fell in love, didn't he? What do you want him to do? This approach just confirms our animal origins in a very comfortable kind of a way. Hey, he did what people do. I mean, animals do that when they find themselves drawn to uh, to uh, any form of sexual activity. With them. They do it. What do you want? But financial straying, financial wrongdoing fails to confirm our animal origins. Do you understand what I'm saying? On the contrary, there's no animal in the world that has developed or ever used a system of money. And therefore, that humans do and use money becomes a suspect activity in exactly the same way that religion is a suspect activity. A Bible belief system, Bible-based belief system is suspect because it's not what animals do. It's what people do. And that suggests a unique origin for people, quite different from animals. And this is very disturbing to our culture. And so this culture um, reserves the, it, the, the maximum criticism 
from those who make their living, for those who make their livings in the most abstract monetary manner. So everybody understands the pull of sexual longing, but not everybody understands what the CEO does to keep a company running. Not everyone understands why it is so difficult to find people of that capacity. You see, people look at beautiful movie stars. People look at some of, I mean, there are not many of them, but some of them are really great actors. And we all, I know, I, I look at, 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 I mean, the late Walter Matthau is somebody who comes to mind. I know that I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I, I look at him, I say, you know, I don't know what he's paid, but whatever he's paid is what people are willing to pay because we like what he's able to do on the screen and uh, we couldn't do it. Or if we watch a football star, right, take a ball and and gain 30 yards up a field, and I look at that and I say, I couldn't do that. I, he's, 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 he's amazing. I could not do that. And so this is one of the reasons that nobody criticizes the massive amounts of money that film stars make for, I mean, millions and millions of dollars for 12 weeks of work which is you know, what it sometimes takes to shoot all the necessary scenes of, an, of a film star in a movie, sometimes less than that. And nobody says, oh, that's obscene. Do you know that that film star is making thousands of times more than a caterer on the set or a, uh, an electrician on the set? Nobody says that because we all understand that what movie stars do are things we couldn't do. Does anybody speak about the incredible amounts of money that professional athletes are paid? No, we don't mind that because we know we couldn't do it. Does anybody say that, uh, oh, that that uh, quarterback is making more money by thousands of times than the, the man who uh, mows the grass on the football field? No, nobody says that because they all understand what footballers do and they say we couldn't do it. But our education has been so negligible in the financial arena that people leave high school and then leave college. Those of them who are unfortunate enough to have an average college education inflicted upon them at enormous cost, um, those people leave their education totally unaware of what a CEO does in a company, completely unaware. And so they trumpet the immorality of those high corporate salaries because they don't have the faintest idea. They, they never say, oh, I couldn't do that. They say, oh, I could sit at a big desk giving orders. And they simply do not understand what the person at the top of a business does. And they do not dream of the thought that they actually couldn't do it. It doesn't occur to them. And that is, again, one of the, the sad differences. So when somebody does anything sexual, everybody understands sexual longing. Not everybody understands what should never be a mystery, but has become the mysteries of financial interaction. And so here is what is really going on. To put it in a nutshell, secular fundamentalism, the philosophical doctrine of the left, secular fundamentalism, yes, it is a belief system, it's like a religion, um, secular fundamentalism 
at its very core, rejects the Bible. It, it utterly uh, deplores the Bible and wants to obliterate any influence the Bible has had. Consequently, anything that the Bible prohibits, secular fundamentalism endorses, accepts, encourages, and celebrates. Got it? So if you've ever wondered why it is that homosexuals can't just go about whatever it is they do to each other, let them carry on about it. Why does it have to become an identity instead of the activity it is? Hear what I'm saying? Homosexuality is not an identity. It is an activity. I myself, you'll pardon me, I, I have a proclivity for beautiful blonde women. Happily, I married one. But I do notice beautiful blonde women. I like beautiful blonde women. Does that become my identity? Am I now a blonde woman lover? No, it's not. It's a part of my life. But it's not my identity. Why is it that homosexuality isn't just the activity Right person could say, hey, I'm, I'm a human being, uh, I'm a shopkeeper, I'm a business person, I'm a teacher, and you know, I like people of, the, of my gender. Fine, all right, that's what you do. But why has it become such a big thing? Why has it become something which is so celebrated and so significant only because the Bible prohibits it? It's as simple as that. Secular fundamentalism is the philosophical belief that has become the national religion of the United States of America today. It is the religion of the American government. It is the religion of entertainment. It's the, re- it's the religion of the educational establishment, both K through 12 and, uh, and college. Secular fundamentalism is the philosophy of America today. And um, the rest of us who, not the rest of us, but at least many of us who are Bible believers, we kind of have to retreat to the catacombs. We're bad people. Why does the culture make such a big fuss of homosexuality? It's very simple, because the Bible prohibits it. Why does the culture make such a big fuss about uh, sexual gender fluidity? What that means is that now sex, your gender and your sex is on uh, on a spectrum. It's kind of where you declare yourself to be. You, know, you, you feel yourself to be a woman. It doesn't matter that you have male anatomical appendages. If you declare yourself to be a woman, you're a woman. And heaven help anybody who doesn't apply the right pronoun to you. You're a, a she and a her, not a him and a he. So why? Well, it's very simple, and that is because the Bible emphasizes biological distinction between man and woman. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, it's male and female. He created them, period. It's, there is not a case of choice. But since the Bible is firm on the dualism, and I, in the very first podcast on the blaze that I did, I explained this duality of masculine and feminine, why it is at the core of a correct understanding of how the world really works. I did that. And uh, and since the Bible emphasizes this duality of masculine and feminine, well, why it's it's pretty obvious that uh, the secular fundamentalism philosophy will undermine that distinction. But what the Bible is very big on is financial independence. 
Yes, it is very big on financial independence. That is why I wrote two books and created a number of audio CD study programs on acquiring financial independence, on increasing your income and your revenue, because that is biblical. One of them is called Thou Shall Prosper. The other is called Business Secrets from the Bible. Uh, their audio programs like Boost Your Income. And by the way, if you'd like to read more about those, I'd love it if you would go to my website, youneedarabbi.com. It's an easy one to remember, isn't it? youneedarabbi.com. And uh, that way you can easily read it more about how everybody, not just people of Jewish ancestry and Jewish background, but everybody can benefit from these principles that is what the Bible encourages. The Bible encourages private property. The, the Bible encourages each man to sit, not under any old vine and any old fig tree, but under his own. The Bible encourages charitable giving. What, out of government money? No, out of your money. The, the Bible encourages the financial interchange, voluntary and free will interchange between two individuals with almost no restriction. And yet, therefore, secular fundamentalism has to absolutely emphasize the inherent wrongness, and it has to pro-business. You know why? Because anything that the Bible encourages, secular fundamentalism loathes, and anything that the Bible prohibits secular fundamentalism loves, embraces, and celebrates. That is a very sad reality, but it's a very true reality. And we have to understand that if you want to know how the world really works, you have to look at everything going on. You have to look at the, the news you see on television. You have to look at the headlines you read in the paper and look at it all through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom. Look at it through the lens that says anything that the Bible approves of, popular culture today, firmly in the hands of secular fundamentalism, hates and loathes. Anything that the Bible uh, prohibits, secular fundamentalism loves and embraces. And so on the university campus, whereas up until the early 1960s, universities saw themselves as in loco parentis. Universities saw themselves as protecting and preserving the values of the parents who entrusted their children's education to that institution. Today, they see it as shattering it. Yes, that's right. Honor your father and your mother, says the Bible. Universities say, violate and defile your parents' values. The Bible says that sexual relationships should be conducted within a sacred and sanctified cocoon called marriage. Universities say, hey, go ahead and hook up. We'll supply you with free equipment to make all of that easy. We'll allow same-sex dormitories. We'll allow same-sex bathrooms, anything to encourage you to behave like young farmyard animals instead of the sacred creatures touched by the finger of God that the Bible describes. And this is how it is, that the great struggle over the role of the Bible is shaping 
American culture and sculpting the turbulence that swirls around the foundations of everything we cherish. And the outcome? Well, let me tell you about uh, four astounding revolutions that shape the modern world we live in. And let's explore whether perhaps we're on the threshold of a fifth frightening revolution. We're going to change gears slightly here, and I want to try and understand why it is that uh, the left in America seems to have such an extraordinarily comfortable relationship with Islam. Uh, the left reserves its hatred and its, uh, its, its profound hostility to Christians and Christianity, uh, the faith of the Bible, uh, Judaism in its, in its essence, uh, Israel, but Muslim countries and Islamic culture, no problem at all. And um, here is, I think, perhaps the, the, the most crucial example. There are lots of instances where the culture, the media, the news, the politicians jump in. I'm not talking about Al Sharpton even. I'm talking about even respectable, some semi-respectable politicians. And they jump in right away. Oh, they know the cause. They know the motivation every single time. And this goes back, by the way, years and years, all the way back to, um, you might remember, October the 6th, 1998. A young man... Um, of the uh, who was a homosexual, Matthew Shepard uh, was beaten to death outside a bar in Laramie, Wyoming. And uh, for the longest time, in fact, even now, there are many homosexual activists who insist that uh, this was a murder because of his sexual orientation. Well, you should know this has been utterly disproved, and uh, even the um, law enforcement authorities now know that this was a drug deal gone bad. But but either way, you know, just remember you heard it from me because by and large, everybody out there takes it as an absolute given that Matthew Shepard was a saint who died on the altar of homosexual rights. It's simply not true. But bottom line is, uh, within hours, everybody was talking about the motivation behind his beating and death. Oh, yeah, it was because of people who hated homosexuals. That's what it was. Right? It's not true, but that's what people said. They immediately knew the motivation, even though they were wrong. But they knew it. Um, June the 17th, 2015, uh, Dylan Roof uh, shoots up and murders people at uh, at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston in South Carolina. And uh, what happened? Immediately, it's racist. And this immediately turned into a big row about the Confederate battle flag. And uh, and look, it may be, and maybe it wasn't. The, the, the trial hasn't been held yet. Uh, there certainly are indications that it was racist, but there were also other things. It's a single a lonely, isolated white male. Okay, well, that's kind of the profile of of the overwhelming majority of mass killings. If you go back to Columbine uh, in Colorado, again, lonely, disaffected, alienated, young, white males. So maybe maybe that's also a factor. Maybe it wasn't racism in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Maybe it was. My point is there's enough grounds to at least investigate and say, you know what, we don't know yet. Oh, no. Immediately, without hesitation, everybody, oh, yeah, this is a racially motivated shooting. We knew that. 
Now what I want to do is take a look at, oh, just one or two uh, murders where to the present day the authorities and the media are still saying, oh, we're struggling to find the motivation. Okay, still trying to find the motivation, having trouble with it. (laughs) Um, Examples. Well, uh, uh, how's about, um, you might remember... Uh, October 2002, during a period of three weeks in that month, October 2002, a guy called John Allen Malvo, uh, uh, John Allen Muhammad, pardon me, and his accomplice Lee Boyd Malvo um, murdered people. They were, became known as the Beltway Snipers or the Washington D.C. Snipers, and uh, and they, they killed a lot of people over a period of three weeks and um, when they were finally captured there was a lot of their talk they had writings about jihad and they this is for Allah and they had statements that uh, and of course they are both were both were Muslims and uh, by the way to the present day nobody knows the motivation right impossible that absolutely unknown uh, you might remember in uh, July the summer of 19 2005 July the 7th 2005 uh, four upper-class Muslim professionals uh, killed people on the London subway. It was a scary bad summer in London. Uh, motivation? Unknown. We have no idea why they did it. Um, how's about uh, June of 2007? That was June the 30th of 2007. Um, some Muslims shot up Glasgow Airport, killing people. Why? Oh, no idea. No idea. They uh, they they had uh, Korans with them. They had jihad literature. No, no, we haven't the faintest idea why they did it. Totally unknown. Uh, November the twenty sixth, two thousand and eight. Um, n- between one hundred and fifty and two hundred people murdered in Bombay um, by Pakistani Muslims. Why they did it? <laughs> Who knows. I mean, they screamed uh, jihad mottos when they went into the Jewish synagogue in Bombay, tortured, mutilated, and murdered. Uh, the rabbi and his wife and their family and uh, some of the other worshippers there, screaming um, Muslim chants and uh, Muslim threat. No, we just don't know what motivated those people. Uh, June the 1st, 2009. You remember the Little Rock Recruiting Center, right? Um, Abdullah Kim. Muhammad, uh, Little Rock Recruiting Center, again, jihad screams, and uh, but why would he have done it? Mm, hard to know. Uh, November the 5th, 2009, the notorious Fort Hood massacre, 13 servicemen, Major Nidal Hassan, made no secret of his Islamic uh, commitment. Nonetheless, uh, this was ruled by the Obama administration, uh, an act of workplace violence with motivation unknown. Uh, March the 2nd, 2011, uh, Frankfurt Airport in Germany, uh, Muslim attackers, kills, no, no, we have no idea what made them do it. Uh, April the 15th, 2013, the date will be remembered, the Boston Marathon bombings, right? Um, two young uh, pa- um, Muslim guys and their Muslim friends, and, and again, uh, no secret of their radical Islamic tendencies. The official motive, oh no, nobody knows what made them do it. I mean, what was it? What were they trying to come? Who knows, right? Impossible to tell. Um, May the 22nd, 2013. I'll, I'll, st- you know, I'll, I'll stop this in a minute. I mean, I'm just trying to let you see. 
that in all these cases where Muslims were at the heart of it, nobody knows why they did it. But let anybody do it, and it's possible to attach a racial, oh, now we know why, if it's anti-homosexual, oh, yeah, now we know why they did it. But uh, when Lee Rigby, a young British soldier, was murdered with two by two Muslims wielding hatchets and knives in Woolwich, Woolwich London, Woolwich in London, May 22nd, 2013, with, by the way, uh, cowardly men standing by and not doing anything. Uh, he was murdered. Muslims crying out jihad mottos. Uh, the British have no idea why this happened. Nobody knows. Uh, September the 23rd, 2014, Melbourne, Australia. A Muslim attacker attacked uh, some security people uh, over there. Again, uh, literature in his backpack, Koran, uh, every uh, hardcore Muslim jihadist. But the Australian authorities are still investigating for a motive. And that's a year and a half ago. They're still looking to find it. How about uh, North America? Let's go to Canada. How about October the 20th, 2014? Uh, you might remember in St. Juan sur Richelieu, um, a car driven by a Muslim guy went and killed, drove and killed two people. And, uh, and, um, and again, uh, he was doing this to uh, advance Islam. He, he, he was pretty direct. However, the Canadian authorities are, are not absolutely sure what caused it. Parliament Hill in Ottawa, two, day, uh, two days later, October 22nd, 2014, once again, uh, shootings over there, Muslim guy, nobody knows why he did it. Um, October 23rd, uh, 2014, Farouk Abdul Malik, uh, New York subway, went, went with a hatchet and started attacking policemen, cutting policemen up. Uh, yeah, again... Um, jihad. Nobody knows why he did it. Um, of course, the uh, the murders in January two thousand fifteen in Paris. Uh, uh, Fifteen people killed there. Nobody knows why they did it. May the third, two thousand and fifteen. Remember, Garland, Texas. This one had a happy ending. They went there loaded with ammunition, loaded with jihad material and um, Islamic radical propaganda, intending to kill everybody who was at that Muhammad drawing cartoon event. Um, why did they do it? I don't know. We're looking for a motive. It's inexplicable. They drove all the way across the country to go there and do it. Why would they have done it? Can't imagine. And then, um, uh, of course, uh, July the 16th, 2015, Chattanooga, the killings of Marines in uh, Chattanooga. Malik Yusuf Abdulaziz, again, no secret of his Islamic and radical affiliations, no secret at all. However, as of the date of recording this podcast, the authorities are struggling to identify what on earth could have possibly been the motivation at driving this individual. Uh, nobody knows. And so, uh, my friends, this is the evidence. It is incontrovertible. It is unarguable that our uh, culture, shaped by the philosophy of secular fundamentalism, is very, very quick to come down on whites who kill blacks. It's not at all quick to come down on blacks who kill whites or on blacks who kill blacks. But anything that suggests a fundamental and deep-seated, irremediable flaw 
in the culture of white European Americans that we're very quick to jump on. But anything that might suggest an inherent cultural flaw in Islam, don't you dare talk of that. That's racism. It's Islamophobia. It's bigotry. And so we're very, very quick to ascribe negative motivations to whites, very quick to ascribe negative motivations to Israel and Israelis, uh, very quick to ascribe negative motivations when harm is done to a homosexual, regardless of what the truth really was. But in case after case, and please don't think I have given you the full list. I mean, I just took the ones uh, mostly in North America or where American citizens uh, were killed or injured. And even there, I didn't take the full list. I just wanted to show you how many there are where Muslims have committed mayhem and the authorities are struggling to find out the motive. What on earth could it be? All right, well, uh, I'm going to explain what is really going on because my dedicated mission is to reveal to you how the world really works. You know that. And uh, you also know that my website is youneedarabbi.com. That's right, www.youneedarabbi.com. And uh, if you go there, you'll be able to sign up to my free weekly email which uh, provides a very quick, short, easy-to-read strategy that can be applied in your lives, uh, bringing improvements in the areas of family, friendships, faith, and, yes, finance as well. Um, So do stop by youneedarabbi.com, and it's also a place you can shoot me an email and connect with me. Uh, Let me know how you feel about the podcast, if there are topics you'd like me to tackle or things you think ought to be done a little bit differently. I'm with you and uh, eager, of course, to hear from you. So don't hesitate and uh, go ahead, stop in at youneedarabbi.com. And so uh, here we are at the um, poised, trying to understand why is it that all kinds of bad thoughts, in other words, if if things, if if police um, don't, shoot a, 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 a black suspect who is harming them. Uh, reason for riots is very understandable because white racist police are constantly hostile to blacks. We ascribe motives very, very quickly, excepting, excepting when the miscreants and the perpetrators are Muslims. There we are baffled. We scratch our heads in bewilderment, trying to know why it could be. Would you like to know why it is? I, as your rabbi, will tell you. We left off establishing the fact that uh, the culture that currently dominates the United States of America is a culture that sees flaws in the European Western tradition. They see flaws in Judaism and anything biblical. Uh, They see flaws in people who are not comfortable with a homosexual lifestyle. But the one group of people that they see no flaws in are Muslims, none whatsoever. And in spite of the fact that whilst it's obviously true that not every Muslim is a terrorist, virtually every terrorist is a Muslim. It is true that while certainly 
um, every Muslim is not by any means a, a violent, a destructive, warlike person. It so happens that it is extremely difficult to find anywhere in the world today at the moment where destructive, warlike, and murderous activities are taking place in which Muslims are not implicated. And yet, in spite of all that, absolutely prohibited to question whether there is anything at all within Islam that, that causes this. What's going on? And again, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I know absolutely nothing at all about Islamic tradition and Islamic faith. And uh, the truth is, I also know absolutely nothing about uh, the, the faith of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. I don't know about the theology and the belief of Mormons, and I do not know about the theology and belief of Muslims. But I will say without hesitation that it must be the theology, philosophy, holy scriptures, and beliefs of Mormons that make Mormons among the the most kind, um, peaceful, law-abiding, productive, family-minded Americans. You only have to look at the statistics of the state of Utah and compare them with statistics of the state of Nevada next door with very, very similar characteristics, and you quickly discover that uh, the faith of the Latter-day Saints Church must be a good effect. It must have a good effect. It must be a powerfully good influence on the lives of people. It must be. Just take a look at their behavior. And that is the only basis on which I think it's fair to judge people, because nobody on the outside knows or understands the intricacies of other people's theological beliefs. And so when I tell you I don't know anything about theology of Islam, that's absolutely true, but I don't need to. All I need to look is at the behavior of the people who subscribe to that faith, and I find it very disturbing. Is that illegitimate? Is that bigotry? Is that Islamophobia? Or is this what used to pass for ordinary scientific inquiry? In the study of sociology, this is what we used to do. We used to explore the behavior of people and link it to their beliefs and link it to their philosophies and link it to the structures they held sacred. Come on. No, surely. Well, regardless, of course, today... This is a different, uh, a different time, and here on this show, on this podcast, I hope you will find in it a resource, a lens to reality, a, a resource for being able to understand truth as it really is, rather than truth as the propaganda would have you believe it, a truth as the way there would be a wish for you to be indoctrinated to believe. So why then this love affair with Islam? Why is it that there is this weird alliance between the left uh, and Islam? Why? Why is it an, an utter refusal to believe or accept anything derogatory possibly about Islam? Well, it's very simple. Oh, and, and by the way, I should point out that um, in uh, the second half of July 2015, uh, a young Jewish woman um, jumped off the roof of a building in New York uh, to her death. Turned out that uh, she had grown up as part of a, uh, a very 
a religious Hasidic family in New York. And uh, when she felt that that lifestyle wasn't for her, she was shunned by the family. And it's, it's tragic. I mean, the, the, it's, it's so sad that the family was not able to accept that uh, she could leave the rigorous strictures of that particular sect of Hasidic Judaism and still be a very good, uh, uh, faithful, and pious Bible-believing Jewish woman. But um, uh, needless to say, media on all sides and everywhere were very quick to say that her religion is complicit in her death. And I read that with astonishment. So religion of Judaism was absolutely complicit in her death, just as it was when... uh, Baruch Goldstein murdered many Arabs in the cave in Hebron in Israel many, many years ago. Nobody hesitated for a moment before saying that his beliefs, wrong-headed as they were, his beliefs were responsible for for the for the killings and for the death. Everybody, I mean, everybody jumped at that. The only group of people whose beliefs have nothing to do with whatever happens are Muslims. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me. And all I can say is that I am waiting, and I'm sure they're out there, I'm waiting for uh, some fair-minded and objective Muslims to stand up and say, you're absolutely right, the evidence is there. Or let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen, I hope I'm not making you uncomfortable with uh, this section of the podcast, but... If I am, ask yourself if I have spoken an untrue word. Have I said anything at all that is a lie? I have told you facts, and I've asked questions about those facts. That's all. And you are drawing the inevitable and obvious correct conclusion, but that's the conclusion you're drawing. And you're not wrong for that, but it may leave you feeling a little uneasy, a little squeamish because you've been so effectively indoctrinated to believe there's something wrong with you if you question the beliefs and philosophies of Islam. And so, why is this? Well, first of all, I want you to understand that in the halls of power in Washington, D.C., whether it's in the White House, whether it's in the uh, the Capitol, whether it is in... Uh, uh, the, the CIA headquarters, National Security Agency. How about the State Department? Let's look at the State Department. I will tell you this, that among the bureaucrats in the State Department, I doubt you will find even one. I doubt you will find even one bureaucrat in the State Department who has ever known a human being willing to kill or die for his religion. This is very important. Among the left, it is completely incomprehensible that anybody would be willing to kill or die for their religion. Why? Because, my friends, religion is antiquated. Religion is primitive. Religion belongs to the long-ago, dark and benighted medieval period of humanity. Religion has been replaced by humanism. Religion has been replaced by scientism. Religion has been replaced by rationalism. 
And in the world of the rational, nobody kills or dies willingly because of something he believes? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the focus of all liberal effort is on maintaining biological life, not spiritual life. And so cars are festooned with many safety devices because we are very preoccupied with keeping people safe. And so we should be. That's fine. But there is no concern whatsoever of keeping people spiritually safe. I'm thinking of sex indoctrination that takes place in the nation's public schools. Young children, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, they're subjected not to sex ed. Please do not do not fall for that Stalinist nomenclature. It's not sex ed. It's sex indoctrination. And the proof of that is that uh, sexual experimentation with all the, the ills that befall it have always gone up in every school district that's introduced sex ed. Oh, they're only doing it to help, uh, and they're only doing it to help. Uh, children are going to engage in sex anyway. Let them learn how to do it safely. and uh, that's the, 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 But it's all designed to get children to forget the Judeo-Christian teachings of their families and of their churches and adopt barnyard culture. That's what it's all about. And the proof of that, by the way, if you don't believe me, and, um, and you know your rabbi wouldn't lie to you not knowingly, but the proof of it is that we all know that schools would never introduce gun ed, would they? I mean, after all, we know of, of, of shootings, so children are getting hold of guns anyways. Why don't we have gun ed? Why don't we have gun, a course to teach children the safe operation of guns? Because they know as much as we do that ed doesn't mean education. It means indoctrination. And the more you have classes about shooting, the more children will feel comfortable, not necessarily shooting, but comfortable about guns. They know that if you have courses on gun ed, you are producing future members of the National Rifle Association. You have courses in school about gun ed, you are raising citizens who will care about their Second Amendment rights. And they don't want that. So naturally, they don't have gun ed. But they do have sex ed because they know full well that if you have sex ed, you are raising another generation of children who will forget the teachings of their parents and will believe that the correct culture of sexuality is if it feels good, go for it. And so the idea that anybody would be willing to kill because of their faith is totally unacceptable in the halls of left-wing power. In the cathedrals of secular fundamentalism, in those cathedrals of secular fundamentalism, it is unthinkable that a faith could be the motive for people to commit murder. And so we don't know what it is, why Major Nisal Nidan Hassal um, killed people and yelled out in the name of Allah. In All of that is irrelevant. He's just a disturbed individual, a case of workplace violence. It is impossible that he was motivated by Islam because we all know that belief systems, no matter what they are, are obsolete vestiges of primitive humanity, and the notion that modern people could use modern weapons to kill other human beings because of their beliefs, because of their religion, that would suggest that religion has power. And if Islam has so much power for bad, maybe their religions like 
Christianity that has power for good, just as there are apparently belief systems that can introduce barbarism, maybe there are belief systems that are responsible for civilization. And that is absolutely intolerably unthinkable. And so that is why Islam is never allowed official as an official explanation or motive for any crime conducted, no matter where or no matter when. It's always, yes, there's a fringe, a tiny fringe group of Muslims who for whatever reason have done horrible things, but that doesn't implicate, certainly doesn't implicate other Muslims, but does it implicate the belief system? That is really the question we need to ask, the question we need to understand. Thank you so much for participating and for being here. And uh, I remind you that I truly love hearing from you. So a great big fat thank you uh, to all of you who have visited my website, clicked on the Contact Us tab, and send me an email. I really appreciate that. Wonderful to hear from you. And I encourage um, all of you to do that. It's uh, youneedarabbi.com. That's right. Just navigate your browser over to www.youneedarabbi.com and uh, click on the Contact Us tab and shoot me a message. And um, I assure you I will read it. I will take it to heart. And uh, also, if you'd like to subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools, I'd love you to do that as well. You do that in the same place, and uh, that way we can stay in touch, and uh, you will be able to know what I'm doing. You'll also receive a free weekly message, very short, condensed, quick, and easy-to-assimilate strategic tool that you can use in your social life, family life, faith life, and uh, indeed even finance life. And so I said that um, in the, the final segment of the show, I wanted to tell you about four revolutions that have really shaped modern life. And of course, those revolutions are the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, the English Revolution, and the American Revolution. And uh, the dates, the Russian Revolution, of course, ran from 1917 through 1918 approximately. Uh, the English Revolution was in the middle of the 17th century, around about uh, 1650, uh, ran from about 1642 to 1650, uh, battles between Cromwell and the king. Um, French Revolution was um, after the American War of Independence or the American Revolutionary War. The French, uh, in, uh, the French Revolution was 1789 to 1799, end of the 18th century. And just before that, the American Revolution, uh, 1765 to 1783. And unless we really get a handle on what causes fire to burn furiously in the hearts of men and to create uh, massive and turbulent revolutions that are colossal upheavals. If we don't get a handle on that, there's no way we can possibly understand how the world really works, and uh, that's what we want to take a look at. And so these four revolutions um, break down very easily into two and two, uh, Russian and French is one type of revolution. English and American was another. And um, let us uh, um, just sort of get a little bit of a handle on what we're talking about here. So first of all, uh, let us say that the, um, the French Revolution was brutal, 
It was horrible, and um, it caused incredible distress. Started with the the most noble of motivations and the most eloquently articulated goals for human progress. It ended up, and I think I think the uh, the act that although we don't know a whole lot about it, but I think the act that uh, that really sheds light on the nature of the French Revolution was the eventual death of the ten year old son of uh, the King of France, King Louis, and his wife Marie Antoinette. Uh, the boy uh, became known as Louis the Seventeenth, and and although he never actually served as King of France, he died. He was killed when he was ten years old. Um, the next one after him called himself Louis the Eighteenth, so that sort of acknowledged that Louis the Seventeenth was real, and he was. Um, he look, I I'm not going to. Uh, tell you the details. I don't want to be ghoulish and macabre. I, I don't want to cause you to to shudder. Uh, I will only tell you that if you actually read up on the tortures that were inflicted on this eleven, this ten-year-old boy, because he was the son of the loathed king and queen, um, it's it's believe me, it's not for the faint of heart. You you really and unless you want to have nightmares for a little while, if you have any sensitivity in your soul, you don't want to know what the uh, heroes of the French Revolution did to this child. I'm not even sure you'd want to know uh, of what they did to his mother. Um, the the way in which Marie Antoinette um, was uh, tormented in the days leading up to her execution by guillotine. Um, in the deliberate violation of any shred of remaining dignity, whatever she did do or didn't do, and as as you probably know, it is it is very doubtful that she actually ever said, "Let them eat cake." But regardless of whatever she did do or she didn't do, uh, to take a woman, whether or not she was queen, but to take a woman and force her to relieve herself and go to the bathroom in front of the crowds of uh, people waiting to see her die, um, that sort of indignity and that sort of human heartlessness, <clears throat> it, as far as I'm concerned, that labeled the French Revolution. The cruelty, the utter lack of compassion, the violation, any idea of the torture that was inflicted on Catholic priests during the uh, French Revolution, any movement that can turn human beings into such beasts has to be something horribly and deeply flawed, a terrible thing. And then um, that finished, and we had the 1800s and no revolutions of note in the 1800s, but then came 1917 and the Russian Revolution. And uh, there again, you know, say what you like, um, but the bottom line is a revolution that was capable of the cruelty that was inflicted against individuals. And, you know, in, in war and revolutions, uh, there, are, there are deaths. Soldiers fight, soldiers kill. But when innocent civilians are not just executed but are tormented and are tortured, the most unspeakable cruelties inflicted upon these people, um, there's something fatally flawed in the philosophy that brought about that event. 
And here again, if we, uh, like with the French Revolution, why don't we take a look at the way in which the Bolsheviks executed the Tsar and his family on the 16th of July in 1918. And again, uh, we're talking about young girls and herded into the cellar and then um, killed in the most cruel and brutal fashion. Uh, the contemporary records of the time pointing out how long the the children stayed alive, fatally shot, and the the cruel laughter and heartlessness of the uh, Bolshevik executioners. Uh, the the order probably all the way down uh, from the top, most likely. Um, no one knows exact details, but we certainly do know the extent of the brutality perpetrated against the Tsar and his family, uh, against the young girls, his daughters, the son, absolutely unspeakable atrocities. And one has to ask, what is behind a movement that can produce that kind of cruelty in its people. And uh, against that, we have the English Revolution in 1642, uh, running for uh, about seven or eight or nine years, and um, the American Revolution culminating in the Declaration of Independence and the founding of the United States of America. Look, um, you've got two horrible, brutal revolutions— Russian and French, both of them involved unimaginable cruelty, and both of them resulted in very bad times for a lot of people, very bad times. The Russian Revolution introduced 70 years of Soviet rule, and, uh, and you all know um, just how bad and how horrible that was, and the, the French Revolution uh, brought in years of, of poverty and hunger and mass starvation. Um, the, 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 the country didn't ever really recover, even till now. Has it really recovered from the extremes and, uh, and horrors of the French Revolution? Hard to know. And the other two revolutions, the English and the, um, and the American, produced... <laughs> times of, of great peace and prosperity. Uh, they introduced good times. What is the difference between these two revolutions? Well, I think it's, it's, it's very clear. The English Revolution, the Cromwellian Revolution, and the American Revolution were fueled by the Bible. That's it. Now, this may be the first time you're hearing such a thing. Uh, I hope it isn't the first time you're hearing that the French Revolution was bad. But uh, I must tell you, it, um, it was one of the first truly disturbing things I discovered about American public education. And that is that virtually all the textbooks authorized for use in American public schools portray the French Revolution as a wonderful, great thing. The heroic uh, overthrow of the evil monarchy. No. The bottom line is the French Revolution had as one of its primary goals the destruction of the Catholic Church. And um, it was a terrible, terrible time. And uh, tragically, people are told to this day that the French Revolution was just the same as the American Revolution. Nothing could be further from the truth. It simply isn't the case. 
the invention of printing in um, in uh, 1650 with Johann Gutenberg and the printing press, coupled with the um, coupled with the printing of the Bible, and and yes, the Bible was the very first thing ever printed in the history of humanity, and uh, by the year. Uh, uh, 1500 more Bibles had been printed than any other book 50 years after the invention of the printing press probably had something to do with the Protestant Reformation in 1500 and uh, and then through a hundred years of the spread of of biblical thinking uh, we came finally to uh, the Russian the the English Revolution and uh, Cromwell and his people were deeply devout bible believing christians and um and so i mean very very scholarly people by the way many of the pastors and christian leaders of the day knew hebrew really really well and uh the bible that was used in um in england in uh post english revolution times was the ainsworth bible and i mean, i have a copy of it what's so extraordinary about it is that about 20 or 30 percent of the commentaries and uh, texts quoted in the Ainsworth Bible are of Hebrew origin. As the, the great Irish historian uh, William Lackey said, the stones of American democracy were cemented with Hebraic mortar. And, and sure enough, uh, I very much doubt that they would have been in America if there hadn't been an English Revolution because it was the people who were at the heart of that revolution who became the separatists and who, uh, who were the ones who realized that their religious beliefs could only be accommodated by uh, a move to a new land, and that's what they did. They first went to Holland, and then after that they went to the, what obviously became the United States, was then North America. So you've got a very good revolution in a sense, the English Revolution, spurred and fueled by the Bible. And then you've got the American Revolution, 1765 to 1783, a remarkable thing. Uh, you know, when um, American soldiers fired on uh, patriots in 1770 and, um, and they were charged, it was John Adams that defended them. Can you imagine such a thing happening in the French Revolution? Can you imagine such a thing happening in the Russian Revolution? It would be laughable. Nothing like that ever happened. These were, were good people. These were good revolutions. And again, the American Revolution, the War of Independence, was driven by the pastors and pulpits of colonial churches. That's where it came from. And, uh, and today, the world that we occupy, the, 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 the modern world, owes so much of its shape to those four revolutions, the Russian in 1917, the uh, French in 1789, and then the good ones, the, Bi the Bible-driven ones of 1642 in England and 1765 in America. What drove the French and the Russians? Uh, the philosophies of humanism. Uh, the French Revolution was driven by the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, rabidly anti-Bible, and the Russian Revolution, driven by the writings of Karl Marx. And so there you've got it, my friends. Uh, you want Karl Marx and Rousseau, who are still revered as the spiritual heads of modern liberalism and socialism, uh, or do you want the Bible? They produced the French, Re the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, and uh, let's not even talk about the murders and killings of Stalin, of Mao Zedong, of Cambodia, everyone else also following down the path of um, the Russian and French revolutions. Uh, or do you want 
the kind of societies that were produced by the English Revolution, the biblically shaped English Revolution, or the kind of society produced by the American Revolution in 1765, uh, resulting, of course, in the days of 1776 and finally ending in 1783 with the Constitution. Uh, that's what we have to decide. Is it going to be the Bible or is it going to be the writings of human philosophers like Rousseau and Karl Marx, as well as many others? And that's really the choice that we have before us, regardless of where you live, regardless of which country you view as your home. Essentially, there are really only two alternative ways of organizing human society and structuring a relationship between those who govern and those who are governed. One is Bible-based, and the other, well, it's the opposite. However, it is described very fully in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's described very fully in only 11 amazing verses in chapter 9 of Genesis. That's right. What we're talking about is the story of the Tower of Babel. Merely a story about some long-forgotten people and an obscure construction project that went fatally wrong? No. As a matter of fact, an almost mathematically structured sequence of verses that lays out the emergence of socialism and its seductive allure and the fearsome consequences that befall those citizens who voluntarily yield their freedom in exchange for a promise of security. Go to the website, if you don't mind it, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, take a look at this amazing two-hour audio program called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. You will not only be fascinated, you will enjoy listening to it with friends and family, and even more, you will enjoy discussing it. Because those two hours of audio teaching provide many more hours of illuminating, exciting, and relationship-building discussion and conversation. I know you'll love it. At any rate, go to the website at uh, youneedarabbi.com and read all about it. See what you think of it. Use the time there to also be in touch. Send us an Ask the Rabbi question. Make sure you read any back episodes of Thought Tools or Susan's Musings or Ask the Rabbi that you may have missed. And uh, shoot us a comment. We love hearing from you. Well, until next week, that is it. I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of great times in your faith, in your family, in your friendships, and your finances. God bless.